Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been impacted by and overcome personal adversities, including your host. The goal of the Unhooked Podcast is to take a deep and hopeful look into the experiences related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of personal struggle. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real areas of life that all of us face. You will hear wisdom from people who fought to persevere through pain, circumstances, and are doing the work to recover. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. This week, I am really excited to welcome back Dr. Daniel Skinner, who was on a prior episode discussing his compassionate and very well-informed view of Ohio's Issue 1. That podcast resulted in lots of messages about his particular empathetic take being what is actually needed for those afflicted with a substance dependency. I also welcome Berkeley France, who is another one of the editors for the new book that has just been released not far from me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. Not only does the subject hit home for me and my own family, but I personally contributed to this work. And I wanted to give the floor completely to Dr. Dan and Berkeley and allow them to share this unique collection that gives hope and honor and is raw and edgy and inviting for those that have been affected by this opioid epidemic, particularly within Ohio. So let me just welcome them back. Dr. Skinner is a political science and health policy researcher. He is currently associate professor of health policy in the Department of Social Medicine at Ohio University, Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, on the Dublin, Ohio campus. He earned his PhD in political science from the City University of New York. Dan teaches, researches, and is active in health policies, health politics and policy, especially in areas of healthcare and access. And honestly, Dan is just second to none. He really knows his stuff. It, it comes out even in conversation. I That's would really like nice of you to say. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Dan is, I'm not going to go through all of this because I'll have some of this in the show notes, and he is has a big bio. Dan is the co-director of the Osteopathic Health Policy Fellowship and host of Prognosis Ohio, a bi-weekly podcast that addresses a wide range of healthcare policy and politics issues in Ohio. Follow him on Twitter at Daniel Skinner, and I will have all of this on my pages. And Berkeley as well is a medical sociologist whose research and teaching focuses on health disparities, hospital community relationships, and health policy. She is currently assistant professor of community-based health at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in Athens, Ohio. Berkeley, Berkeley holds a Heritage Endowed Career Development Faculty Fellowship in Population Health Science. Some of this stuff is just way over my head. I'm really sorry, but you guys are well qualified. And um, <laughs> he additionally holds an adjunct appointments in the departments of classics and world religions and women's gender and sexuality studies at Ohio University. She received an MA in religious studies from the University of Chicago and a PhD in sociology from the University of Miami, definitely way over my pay grade, but I have found them both to be warm <laughs> and relatable, even though they are high, high education. So that said, welcome you both. And I just want to kind of turn it over to you to tell us all about this project you guys have brought together. Thank you so much for having us. 
Yeah, thanks, Andy. That was really, really nice. And, you know, Berkeley and I, we've tried to, everywhere we've spoken um, in the last couple of months since the book came out, one of the things we've gone out of our way to say is just to remind people that we are the co-editors of this book. People like you are the contributors. The book exists because of people like you. So thanks for, for all of that fanfare, but we also want to thank you for your contribution to the book. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, and first, for those who aren't aware, if you want to just say how you came together on this project and if you would let our listeners know what Not Far From Me is about, what its goal is, who it was written by and written for. So if you guys would just kind of like to take it away. Okay, I can start um, and just say a little bit about the, the book project. Um, Dan and I have been working together for a number of years now. And um, despite not being on the same campus, collaborate a lot in some of our writing and research projects. So the book, Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio, is an edited collection, as Dan mentioned. So we're not the, the writers of this book. We have over 50 contributors from across the state of Ohio who have very you know, bravely and honestly shared their experiences of how opioids have affected them either individually, how they've affected their families, or affected them indirectly, um, you know, through others in their community. And so we have people sharing these very personal experiences that we think are a really powerful way to relate to what's happening across the state and and hopefully instill a bit more empathy about um, what addiction looks like and, and how people can respond and promote recovery. I'll just build on that. I mean, uh, the book really came together um, in part because Berkeley and I, you know, since we do talk a lot through the context, you know, in the context of doing our research projects, we realized we shared a kind of um, dissatisfaction with just the kind of narratives or the, the, the diversity of narratives that were being used to talk about the opioid situation in particular, but also just addiction generally in our state um, and, and, and beyond. So we thought that I mean, Berkeley comes out of doing really uh, high impact work uh, in her own scholarship in, in narrative, in narrative medicine. Um, I have a background in, in studying rhetoric and politics. And I think those kind of came together for us to, you know, that led us to say, it'd be really great if we could just hear people speak in the first person rather than, you know, legislators speaking for people or clinicians. I mean, although there are clinicians, but the clinicians in our book tend to talk from their own perspective, right? So that was one of the, I think, the, the motivations for the project. I think it's so interesting. Um, I know you're both familiar with Sam Quinones who wrote Dreamland and he had begun his book from the perspective of health policy, but when he began to hear the stories, it opened up a whole new realm for him. And I know that's been quite an experience as it would be for anyone when you are boots on the ground face to face with families who are living this. Um, Yeah. Let me just add, you know, it was about, I think we were like almost three months into this project and Sam came to Ohio University to speak. And I remember Berkeley and I were kind of, you know, as people do, we were texting at one point in the conversation when watching him speak. And he said, because we were so excited because he said something like, okay, well, my book has done this and I've gone around the country talking about this, but I'm from California. And he said, it's really time for Ohioans and for people in these locations, in these communities to tell their own stories. And he's really pivoting you know, saying like, yeah, my book opened up this space, but he really pivoted to the first person and the importance of that at this time. 
Wow, I love that. Well, yeah. I always say Ohio's the heart of it all. And just like <laughs> I believe it was reported that the first fentanyl overdose occurred in Ohio, the first recovery meeting occurred in Ohio as well. And I believe that we are really where it all begins as far as even Sam's book says that. So if we could just get right into it, I thought it was interesting that the forward was written by Governor Ted Strickland. So if you could kind of let us know how that came about and what his take on it was. So you know, I can tell the story and Berkeley can add because she has some real insight into what he wrote. But, you know, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, we were, you know, it was important to us that nobody in the book be actively really seeking office. We didn't want our book to become a political thing. We wanted to sort of avoid that. And Governor Strickland had been there during some of the early years when all, a lot of this came together. It was really as simple as that I heard that this is an, an, an issue that was important to him. I saw him, uh, I think it was a YouTube address or com- a panel he was on or something like that. And uh, I thought, hey, it would be cool um, if, he, if we could track them down. It was Mayor Nan Whaley in Dayton who made the connection. And I have to say, I mean, Governor Strickland couldn't have been nicer. You know, I'm still a little starstruck from just the access. You know, Nan said, uh, hey, just call him up. Here's his cell phone. And he just answered the phone in the car driving somewhere and said, sure, meet me for lunch. And then Berkeley and I had lunch with him. And that was that. Wow. Yeah, I think it was so it was so important for us to have him uh, write the forward to the book, you know, just to to show, I think, to, you know, Ohioans that, you know, even the former governor had been affected personally. You know, he had a, a member of his own family affected by unfortunately um, experienced a fatal overdose. And I think what it really showed that we wanted to show is that, you know, addiction has affected so many families across Ohio and there hasn't been enough public conversation or dialogue to really demonstrate that it doesn't just happen you know, it doesn't just happen to certain families and not others, that it certainly um, is, is incredibly, you know, has affected incredible amounts of the state. So I think that is a kind of an equalizer and just showing that it doesn't matter, you know, if you're rich or poor or where you live across the state, that there is, there has been an impact and we are not very good about talking openly about it. You know, and I, that's great. And I also tell the story about Governor Strickland because, you know, the accessibility, the, um, just the eagerness to tell the story, his warmth. And, and you know, when, when we received his forward to the book, I remember hearing from people at the press because we sent it to them and they were saying, they were really, as we were, really taken by the story, really moved. But there was also another context, which is, as Berkeley mentioned, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter, rich or poor, powerful, known, unknown, public, private. Um, I had, you know, shared uh, a kind of, I was kind of united with Governor Kasich in one thing, which is that I had a student that when I was teaching at Capital University, I had a student who overdosed after I was gone, but he was one of my advisees. Um, and he overdosed from fentanyl and died. And he was also Governor Kasich's um, campaign aide, one of his closest campaign aides. Everybody knew Ryan Dupain on the Kasich campaign when, when he was, um, you know, playing around with the idea of running for president up in New Hampshire and stuff. So, you know, it really hits all sorts of people. Um, as you know, our former Lieutenant, May, uh, Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor has talked about her family's um, battle with addiction as well. So just having... Um, people um, in visible places speak with clarity like that is really important. Yeah, I would agree. And I don't know if um, you mind, have either of you had anyone close to you, friendship, family member that has been um, in the grips of addiction, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I can start. So yeah, I've had a family member um, die from a heroin overdose. Oh. Um, had a cousin. So yeah, 
some, somewhat directly affected, but I think also just living in Ohio, I think we've had a lot of uh, colleagues and friends come up to us since they've you know, learned about our work studying addiction um, that have shared stories that we wouldn't have known about otherwise. Even that really kind of struck me as working on this book is that, you know, people I knew and that I thought I knew you know, fairly well and care a lot about it, experienced things that they weren't comfortable sharing until they knew that, that I was working on the subject. And so I, I think a lot more has come out that I've learned about as, as part of working on this book project. Yeah. I'll also say, I mean, uh, five years ago next week, we're, we're talking, I think it's on the, I think today's the fifth or sixth. I'm losing track of the days, but about five years ago next week, my brother passed away from an overdose. It wasn't an opioid related overdose. It was a little bit more mysterious and we'll probably never know the full details, but it doesn't really matter. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the things that Berkeley and I have talked about a lot is we don't want people to be completely focused on the opioid part of this. We really want to think about the compassion and humanism we bring to addiction and not in and other things like addiction, just um, need in general, you know? Um, and the more we're willing to just talk about our own stories, I think the, the closer we'll get to that. Yeah. And wow. I'm so sorry for both of your losses. And, and I do absolutely agree. It's not just opioid. It's um, it goes deeper into an issue of connection, I believe. And I think that's kind of starting to be realized. Um, so I, I think it's interesting also that you guys broke it down into different parts. And the first one is establishing place. And what I love the most about that was the aspect of home. And I just thought that was so moving because home truly is, you know, where your heart is. And you brought out such a flavor of that. If you could go into why you decided on making that the opening piece. Well, I just want to say, Annie, to, so for listeners, we didn't bring it out. You brought it out. So you're, you're the second um, contribution in the book right at the beginning of that section. And I'll, I'll just tell you, and Berkeley can add, I mean, one of the reasons we loved your piece, so we opened with Darren Damery's poem. We thought it was just a nice little blast of some real impressions of the state, but also really established the issue. Um, but your piece just kind of exuded this love of the state. It's the same thing we, we found in Governor Strickland's piece too. Just, you know, and it, it's throughout the book, just people who love this state. Almost, uh, you know, I, when I moved here from New York, I was like blown away by how much people love Ohio and how I had all these students in college. When I was in New York, all my students in college wanted to leave home. They wanted to go, you know, California or whatever. Nobody wants to leave Ohio. It's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you capture all these amazing snapshots of it, even while addressing the serious issue of addiction. Oh, well, thank you. It definitely is unique. And the one thing I wanted to point out is that we can experience four seasons in one week. And that is something that <laughs> Ohioans are quite used to. And if you're not from here, it's, it takes a little bit of adapting. Yeah, I totally agree with Dan about that. I mean, I think your piece really showed that, you know, there's this is a complicated issue and that you can have, you know, strong feelings about how wonderful Ohio is while at the same time, you know, knowing so much about um, you know, some of the challenges it faces, especially related to opioid addiction. And so I think we wanted to put this up front at the book and talk about the setting in which this takes place. I mean, this is kind of an unusual collection that's focused on one particular population, you know, of, of one state. I think we really wanted to kind of set the stage for the entire book by talking a little bit about where, you know, what all the contributors in this book have in common about the places in which they inhabit. And I think we wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what about the state has made it vulnerable? You know, it, it's, this is, you know, one of the, the most affected states in terms of opioid overdoses. And we wanted to kind of understand um, both what Ohio looks like now, but also how people are trying to kind of reinvent communities and spaces to try to promote um, health and recovery across the state. 
Yeah, I love that. Um, on page 20, there's a poem that we will have included at the end by Barbara Biggs, and it's called Walking Past Abandoned Houses. I think of Eric. It, it is just beautifully done. And then on the next page, there's a piece called How Are the Children by Joy Edgel of Belpre. I thought that was so interesting how she opened up about the meaning of Belpre and went kind of into what she does and what she's experiencing. So if you guys could just kind of discuss a little bit of that piece. I related to it so much because I actually went to school like that when I was little. I came from a family that was struggling and a teacher recognized that she had to take care of me in ways that she may have not been educated in and it was her first year. So I was completely moved by this piece. If you want to share a little bit about that. Sure, I can start. So yeah, Joy Edgel um, is the principal of Belpre Elementary School down in the southeastern corner of the state on the border of West Virginia and Parkersburg. Um, she is an incredible educator and she writes in this in this story about a, a student that comes to her school, um, you know, in, in old clothes, who's dirty, and she eventually finds out that the child doesn't have running water at home and um, fits maybe many of the stereotypes of what people think about of Appalachian poverty. And um, the teachers really step in and see this need. They find a way to give this child, the school nurse gives the child baths at school and they bring her fresh clothing and, and help the child kind of adapt and um, thrive in this educational setting. And the teachers talk about how they've had to really kind of expand their skill set to try to address children's basic needs because many aren't being met at home as a result of drug addiction. So it's really kind of pushed educators to think about, you know, what it takes to help a child learn. It's more than just learning, you know, you know, facts and, um, you know, critical thinking skills that a lot of it takes just meeting basic needs. And it's a really encouraging piece and just thinking about what people are doing across the state that we don't really know about. About, that nobody's talking about or really giving credit for. So I think it's a really uplifting piece, even though it starts with a really you know tough story of a child facing you know tra trauma and, and tremendous adversity. I thought it was so beautifully done, and the way that it showed that child kind of came alive once she felt comfortable and, and good enough about herself to begin to blend socially. I thought that was she captured that beautifully. Yeah, and I'll also just add, and you know, um, without getting too political, I think it does need to be said that in the backdrop, a lot of these of, of these stories is a, a political lesson. I mean, our state, you know, it comes out again and again in these pieces. Um, you know, the loss of industry, um, the uh, decline of wages, and you know the the uh, exodus of, of unions and things like that, but also the public school system, you know, just the fact that these teachers, I mean, it's my view that many public school systems in Ohio, and I think the book bears this out, are really held together by the goodwill of people like Joy Edgel. You know, they're underfunded. Um, we've had years of, you know, tax cut after tax cut and sort of the erosion of our municipal tax base. And that's left us without the ability to meet not only just addiction services and, uh, and things like that, the needs there, but also, you know, places like public libraries, places like, as we show in the book, uh, in a couple of selections, um, and, and public schools as well. They're picking up the slack, and we're really lucky they are because I'm not always sure we deserve that level of, of intense engagement with kids and with community members, but we're lucky to have folks who have stepped up in that way. But I hope that one of the things we get out of this current situation is just a reevaluation of the or a recognition of how important having a strong kind of you know structural base of our state is yeah well, that's so interesting the loss of industry i'd say there's just been 
a lot of loss of connection as well and gathering. I remember my parents going to bowling leagues and card nights and you don't often hear of that or see so much of that now. Everyone seems to connect with technology. So I think there's been a loss of that as well and a loss of family. And I've seen something kind of interesting over the past couple of years in working in public settings with the community that there's been this dynamic where I will go into these homes and someone will call a family member. That's my uncle or cousin or my grandmother. But then they have a disclaimer. He's not really my uncle. He was my neighbor. That's not really my grandmother. She was my boyfriend's mom. And I started noticing that it was the majority of these families were pieced together like that, but weren't really biological. So I just thought that was so interesting that in the fragmentation of what the epidemic has done, because that's mostly who I work with, there was this, not only a loss of connection and family, but a grappling to regain it. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, I, I, I to me, that's beautiful, right? Uh, right. Wherever, however your family is, is constructed, however your support network is constructed, is a great thing. And I'm, I'm not going to, you know, be one to focus too much on the biological part of things. But I will say just like, you know, the, my question is, are we actually supporting people to live healthy, um, active, you know, uh, emotionally stable lives? And I think that's one of the things that comes out in this book is that, again, I mean, Ohioans um, are tenacious in their um, – um, you know, I forget what the word is. They have grit. I think that's the language you hear a lot these days. But, I, you know, I want to say, look, you know, we're making it harder for people than it should be. It's good that people have grit, but I hope that they need less grit to survive in the future. Yeah. I would say, Annie, you're, I think you're really hitting on something in terms of the civic engagement or having these community connections. There was actually a book that came out um, from a sociologist called Bowling Alone and about, it was about the, the decline of bowling leagues. Like you're saying, of places where people used to go out and meet each other and have social support and, and that's really declined in the last few decades in the United States. But there's been some research um, in the last couple of years showing that that kind of loss of these social connections is, is related to opioid overdoses in particular. So I think we, we know um, with some confidence that that's really bad for our health in, in a lot of ways, and addiction is one of those. So I think that we, we should be talking about that more, about ways that we can foster these connections um, after they've been lost. You know, and, and, and also, you know, we've had this amazing opportunity with really generous support from the Ohio Humanities Council to go around to libraries in the, in, around the state. Annie, you came to one of the sessions here in Columbus. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, what we've learned about all sorts of kinds of new associations, I think, that are formed. And, you know, you expect that out of a crisis. You expect that out of any kind of public health or public um, transformation like this. One of the ones that really jumps out at me is, and you know, Berkeley and I have talked about this, at several of our sessions, we've had groups of grandmothers come who are taking care of their grandkids, um, either their children, their, the, the biological parents are either incarcerated or are, are deceased. And, you know, these support groups are so important because these grandparents tell you, I've, I've had to learn how to be a parent again. You know, yeah. they're like 65, 70 years old and being a parent today is totally different in many ways than it was when they were parents. But they are getting together with each other in spaces like libraries and sharing, you know, comparing notes, uh, like sharing tips. And while that's like a really tragic thing on one level, it's also just amazing on another. 
Yeah, there is something about support that when you have people come around you with positive regard and there's really no pedestals, but it's just a non-judgmental way of sharing experience, there is something so magical about that. And that's why I believe in recovery processes. And there's not necessarily a one size fits all, but just finding your people and building your team, I believe is what, like you said, being able to find ways to, to encourage people to have healthier connections and lives, I think that's really one of the major parts of it. There, um, one of the things I noticed also, and I love this, is the diversity of subjects and writers. I think you opened up all of Ohio as much as you did different aspects of the epidemic. I love that there's a doctor and obstetrician. There's, again, librarians. Um, were those contributions or did you set out to find that diversity? Well, you know, I, as we've explained it to people talking about this project, um, you know, our first step was just to kind of see who wanted to contribute. And then we realized, oh, duh, you're writing about a really important issue at a really pressing time. A lot of people yeah. wanted to contribute. We wanted to make sure the book wasn't, didn't just have regional coverage, but also had uh, thematic diversity, different perspectives. Um, so, yeah, we, we, some of it was intentional. I mean, I think we also learned from people who came to us, uh, we learned new perspectives. For example, a lot of people really came at the opioid uh, situation in our state as people with real legitimate pain who are really worried that they were going to get caught up in a catch-all, politically driven uh, solution. Yeah, so right as we were working on the book, for example, uh, Senator Gillibrand in New York and Senator Gardner uh, in Colorado um, came out with their proposal to have a seven-day hard cut on, on opioids. And that's just ridiculous, like to not, to not really think about what patients need. So that was actually the first people who came to us were actually not the folks who had lost people or who had been in recovery. They were, the worry, they, they were worried that they were going to get cut off and they didn't know what was going to happen to their needs in terms of their pain. So I think, yeah, I learned a lot from just the people who came to us at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was definitely all sides of it like that. That's what I found. Every chapter tells a different situation and story as much as it does a different area of our state. And and speaking of library directors, I don't know if most people are aware or if, you know, if everyone is, especially our listeners, that libraries are really a concerning place. We were in one when I came to the gathering that you had in Columbus where there was a social worker employed with the library. They're becoming places of gathering and connection and I think giving hope to kids and community, but they're also a place where people are stepping in and, and using. So if you could touch on that, your knowledge of that. Sure, I can, and yeah, I can comment on that. So, um, yeah, we've had an opportunity to meet librarians from across the state, which has been wonderful. There's a lot of diversity in, you know, resources that libraries have, and the communities they serve are very different across the state. But um, every single library, when we brought this topic to them and, and, you know, wanted to partner with these conversation, conversations, had had some personal experience. And many of the ways in which they'd come to experience the opioid epidemic was people attempting to use opioids in their facilities because they are open spaces, they're public, they're free, and they have uh, quiet places, especially restrooms where people can use drugs um, without gathering much attention. So many of the librarians that we had talked with had experienced overdoses on their facilities, had been there personally. 
Um, they had found drugs, for example, in the, the tank of a toilet or other places and were kind of um, had this kind of heightened awareness of, of the potential for people to be affected um, within their facilities. So that's kind of sparked a lot of new conversations as well about, you know, whether librarians should be prepared, should they keep carrying Narcan or Naloxone with them to help revive somebody. And so I think this is very much on the kind of radar of librarians now because they've had these experiences either in the facilities or just outside in the parking lot. Yeah, and I'll also just add, uh, Annie used the word concerning, and there are certainly concerns uh, of what takes place in libraries, uh, of course, because they're public spaces and we need to be concerned about what we're doing with them. But I would actually say they're some of the most uplifting places and some of the most hopeful places we have in the state. Uh, you know, and, and I really, to come back, you know, Berkeley mentioned Robert Putnam before the book on bowling alone. And I think there is a real question here of, where are our gener genuinely public spaces? Um, where are the places where we go to gather, to be together, where we all feel safe, where we all feel included? Libraries are pretty much the only ones we really have. You know, there are some churches that are very inclusive, some faith, other faith-based faith -based organizations that are, are inclusive. But we also see in the book, I mean, we heard a little bit that some folks would say, you know, um, LGBTQ uh, folks, for example, it's, have told us, you know, that they, they really struggle to find addiction recovery uh, services that are not faith-based, where they feel that they can be themselves, where they don't feel like they have to misrepresent themselves as religious or something like that. So I think there's a real question of, do we have enough spaces where every Ohioan can go, no matter who they are, where they don't have to worry about bias or stigma or discrimination, where they can just focus on their addiction? And I think that's one of the ways in which libraries really shine in our state. I agree. They absolutely do. A library was a, my, a safe space for me when I was a teenager and early adult. I would go there and spend hours reading biographies about the lives that I wanted to one day hopefully have. And after our meeting, I had a librarian reach out to me and ask me if I could provide a list of recovery groups and put her in touch with a safe station firehouse because they were so wanting to reach in and help these kids or anybody who did appear on their, you know, at their location because they're, they're wanting to welcome people and get involved, even though there does seem to be concerns. Okay. When I turn to page 40, that's called a heartache, not my own by Caitlin Sita Seda. I'm not sure how to say that. Um, from the plains. And I thought this was great because she gives the perspective of two siblings who are from the same home and then come out completely different, even as far as their hair and their, their perception of addiction. So if you could kind of touch on what this chapter is about, maybe your experience with this family. Sure. I can, I can start. I'll defer so, to Berkeley as our resident <laughs> Southeastern Ohioan. True. <laughs> I am regionally proximate um, <laughs> to Caitlin. So what I really like about Caitlin's piece, and she tells a story of, of moving to Ohio and, and joining this new community that's been heavily affected by opioids, and she's raising a child there. Um, and she talks about, you know, having to shield her child from the reality of what she's seeing every day, you know, whether it's needles in the ground or she talks about one of her neighbors being um, you know, raided by the police who was, you know, potentially had some activity related to drugs and about, um, you know, just being affected by living in this community and trying to do something to help but not really knowing exactly where to jump in. And what I like about her perspective on this is that she shows that, you know, being a resident of the community is is you know, an important way that many people have been affected, even if it hasn't been 
them personally. I mean, she had a, you know, a sibling um, with a substance use disorder, but she also had, it just was affected by living within this community that had a high level of drug use. And so I think that really just showed too the different ways in which people can be affected that may not be um, as direct as, you know, an individual um, or a family member or something like that. And it really shows, I think, that I had a mom in a meeting one night talk about how different her sons were, and they were raised in the same home. And she said, do you think I treated one different than the other? We had the same dinner, the same consequences, the same activities, but one of them turned out to be what she called a live and learn type of kid, and the other one became a learn and live. So one of them, she said, he almost kind of needs banged up on the side of the head to learn a lesson. And then the other son will see something coming like that and kind of avoid it. And she said, and I love them both exactly the same. They grew up in the same house. One of them went through an addiction. The other one, you know, steered clear. I just think it's so interesting that it really is not predictable. Yeah. And I think in terms of the aim we had with this project to really you know, focus on reducing stigma around this issue. One of the things that jumps off these pages for me is, um, you know, parenting. You know, we, we always talk about good and bad parents and the power of parenting. And of course, parenting matters. But I really think this book shows that, that you know, this is, this is a moment not for looking at individual families or casting judgment on good or bad or whatever, but thinking about the social structures, the social supports, the way we've designed our communities. Um, you know, the expectations we have, uh, it, it, it's really humbling to realize that, it, especially when people talk about the opioid issue, uh, you know, engaging so many affluent Ohioans and, and Americans and others. Um, you know, this is not a, a moment even, you know, I would say to the person you were talking to, like, in a way, it's like, maybe that matters, but I don't think that's by far the most important thing at all. Everybody's got to give themselves a break. We have great people in this book who write about the absolutely gut-wrenching experience of just saying to their child, sorry, you can't come home anymore until you're like, and like, there are some people just think, Oh my God, how could you ever say that to your child? Well, listen to these people's stories and tell me you don't have empathy for how they're trying to balance lots of things. Sometimes it's because they have other kids in the family, but sometimes it's also because there's a line where their own lives were in jeopardy, where they needed, they needed to just draw a line and, um, you know, I think, I think that was very humbling for me and also just sobering to say, you know, before you jump to that conclusion, really think about and listen to their story here. Yeah, that's absolutely true because I can pretty well almost guarantee you that 10 times out of 10, when a parent has to make that statement, it's the very last thing they want to do. Yeah. Which leads me absolutely. to part two, which was, you know, the heavier part, but I think it was beautifully done. Um, processing loss and turning over that subject it opened up you introduced it and then it opened up with Tony Anders from Upper Arlington who talked about what addiction gave him and then there was a chapter written by the mayor of Dayton and if you could kind of elaborate that I thought that was interesting as well can I can I just mention something about Tony Anders's piece yeah. uh, before we do that and Berkeley can talk to the mayor Welly's piece you know we wanted to open the piece. Obviously, there's a little bit of a, um, I don't know, a, a jujitsu moment there where we open the chapter on loss by a piece about what Tony got from this, you know, what it gave him, which is the opposite of loss. And 
I think that was important for a lot of, a lot of people in this book, um, even those who lost people who nearly lost themselves, um, now look back on it and are doing transformative work. And that was something we tried to highlight in the book. Yeah, I agree. I actually met with a father recently who talked about how he had done so much work understanding addiction and working on his own recovery on the side of the house of the affected family that when his son did pass away of an overdose, their relationship was at such a loving place that he had come to a point where he learned to love him in a different way and he hadn't been shaming him and shouting at him and condemning him and fighting with him constantly. He had started to approach him in a really loving way and work on his own peace. And I thought that was just an interesting spin on it, that that's what he took away from it too. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Berkeley? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, about Mayor Whaley's piece. So, you know, in this piece, there's a lot of things that I think you can really pull out of it that are that are great. Um, but one of the things that Mayor Whaley does that a few other contributors do as well is they kind of narrate what it was like to live and work in Ohio as the opioid epidemic was um, starting to increase or starting to develop. And I think there's this kind of moment of recognition when people talk about when they realize what was happening. Because at first, you know, there were certain you know, they would see certain cases that seemed isolated, and all of a sudden they realized that these were all related and they were part of some kind of bigger, you know, phenomenon happening. And so Mayor Whaley talks about that um, from, you know, her personal experience of what it was like to work in the city and realize how much it was being affected. Um, and so, you know, you may know that Dayton, Ohio is, you know, at one point was labeled the overdose capital of the world. And I think that for, you know, for good leaders, they really take that responsibility to heart. And when they, you know, have these, these incredible challenges facing their communities, um, they really feel responsible and they feel um, like they need to act. And so she talks about, you know, some of the things that they've developed that is that have made them be effective at addressing opioid overdoses, but also to her, what stories have met, you know, actually meeting people across Dayton really motivated her to keep up this work and that the stories to her, you know, made it impossible to ignore, you know, it's, it's easy to think about facts and figures, but it's really hard to sit across from somebody who's been affected personally and not uh, feel motivated to do something. So it's a really great look about what it's like to be in, you know, public office and to face the responsibility of a, a major public health challenge like this. One of the things that I've learned from, uh, you know, and you actually saw it recently in the Dayton shooting um, and also in the tornadoes. They, I mean, they had a Ku Klux Klan rally recently. Oh. You know, I mean, Dayton's been through an awful lot this in, in 2019. Um, but one of the things that Mayor Whaley has really emphasized in the media and also to us is, you know, there are a few actors in our state who can't pass the buck on this, you know, the, the, the body bags just pile up or the, you know, the lines outside addiction services, like the the mayors really see the front lines of things. And there isn't really a way to just kind of like shuffle it off. I mean, Giuliani tried that when I was growing up in New York and he did that pretty successfully, but it was horrible, right? Like getting, you know, just discarding homeless folks and, and, and pushing them to the side. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of sheriffs in, in, in Ohio are also learning that lesson. There are a bunch of folks in our state who are really taking responsibility for an issue because they just, they have to. And I worry about that with like, you know, some of our uh, Congress, congressional delegation and other politicians who are kind of still continue to use this issue as a little bit of a, a kind of symbolic thing, something to talk about. And, you know, they have the luxury as federal officials of not really dealing with the consequences of it. And somebody like Mayor Whaley, 
or Joy Edgel in her school or um, Deputy Sheriff, um, the other Whaley, no relation in Toledo. Um, th- those are folks who, um, you know, it's, it, it confronts them and they have to do something or they have to deal with the living their lives knowing they did nothing and, and were part of the problem. And I think that's one of the things that really jumps out at me. There are different kinds of leadership in this book. Yeah, I agree. There's a Hope Task Force in Franklin County, and that is was began by Chief Deputy Rick Minard, and he talked about how he began to have his eyes opened over the course of his career. He had, you know, kind of saw people as bad guys before, but just being out around the families, he softened and realized this problem's not going to be addressed without some component of compassion. And... I love that when you see that out of a public official that you would normally expect something kind of maybe digital and dry. So, of course, the one thing about that is, you know, people like Rick Minard and um, um, Deputy uh, Sheriff Whaley and others, uh, law enforcement folks around the state have talked about this, this transformation they've undergone. But, of course, that brings us to the kind of elephant in the room, the obvious question, I hope, by this point it's obvious, which is that other crises did not afford, for example, people of color, the same kind of uh, benefits, like crises that affected people that were not as affluent in particular, or that were part of certain communities, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and pieces like, um, you know, Ivanka Maria Hall's piece in, in our book, talk about this history, talk about the fact that they've been doing harm reduction for years, they've been advocating for this, they've been advocating for things like drug courts, for a less criminal justice um, um, minded of, uh, approach. And here we are talking about drug courts. We're talking about, um, you know, compassion and humanism, but it wasn't afforded to other people in the past. And some of those folks are still locked up and they're still locked up on charges that were purely related to drug activity. So, you know, there is also a question that we have throughout this book, which is, are we actually going back and rethinking what we do? Or are we, um, you know, just doing this now and we're going to go back to the old lock them up approach when it's to when, it, when, when we're dealing with situations that deal with less empowered communities or communities that have been discriminated against historically? Well, that's an interesting take and it's something that can't be doesn't go unnoticed. So I don't know. I mean, what's the answer? Berkeley, what's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that to me. I think that we have to learn from this experience, and I think that we have to, to look uh, historically. I think, as, as Dan mentioned, I think that's an important point. You know, this isn't the first drug epidemic that's happened in the United States, and I think we have to think about the kind of layers of who's affected and, and how this response might look different than other drug epidemics in the past, and what we can learn from um, the kind of vulnerabilities in communities that have, you know, led you know certain populations to become um, addicted. And I think that we have to face some of the really uncomfortable conversations that have um, kind of predisposed all of us as Ohioans to um, to face this problem. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we, I, as I said earlier, you know, we're one of our hopes for this project is that we just don't tick a box and say, okay, opioid crisis done. We, we handled that correctly. Now get on with it. This has got to transform our state. It's got to yeah. transform the way we think about communities. It's, it's got to transform the way we think about whether we turn to a criminal justice model or to a public health model. And I, I have to tell you, I mean, I'm, this book makes me hopeful, but I'm not hopeful. I mean, I need to see it. I need to see people really invest in that hard work of checking themselves and looking at the history. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's a matter of expanding compassion from village to village, no matter how different. And I, I tend to have a, a passion for this work, but it's because my life has been so radically affected by it my entire life. Um, and I, I am encouraged by seeing people wake up and have compassion that aren't as affected. So I think it's probably a day at a time, a situation at a time, you know, so to speak. And, and then speaking of the village, I write in chapter 16, I love that you combined the entire family. We're still in the subject of loss. The, um, one of them is a felon who presents the perspective of being sick, addicted, and convicted. And it goes into the perspective of his sibling, which is powerful. And then I believe his mother. So if you could kind of highlight that, how it's the entire unit. Yeah. So this piece is uh, close to us. It's, um, you know, actually related to some folks who are part of our Ohio University community here. I'm going to be speaking, um, we're talking on the 5th here, I believe. Um, next week, I'm going to be talking um, with the Steinbergers um, on stage at the Ohio Correctional Educators Association meeting in Sandusky. And, you know, I mean, AJ is doing really well. He's, um, you know, he's in, he's actually enrolled at Ohio University through our corrections, pro, um, corrections education program. Um, program. So there's, there's a lot of hope there, but it hasn't been easy. And he's offered a lot of very direct um, insight into, um, and as Jonathan Becker does as well in his piece, into what it's like being incarcerated and trying to deal with addiction. Uh, some folks seem that I've, I've learned from talking with them that some folks seem to think that prisons are these like places to go and detox or whatever language you want to use, but they are far from that. There's, there are drugs uh, circulating throughout Ohio's corrections, um, uh, correctional facilities, and they are not always the most welcoming or humanistic or um, certainly public health minded places to, to do the hard work of recovery. So it was really amazing, but also just having the family work through this together. I mean, a, um, you know, Sherry and Alan, the parents are, really inspiring. They've gone around speaking about this very openly and very bravely. Um, and Jenna, who's in college, um, you know, is just, it's framed her entire life and, and given her life some, some, some purpose that it didn't have, um, you know, and everybody just can't wait till AJ gets out. I love, I just love how it showed all sides of that. And I actually have a set, a, a couple in one of my family groups who their son has been incarcerated for a few years and he's getting ready to get out. So he was moved to a more lenient unit where he was before there were lots of recovery meetings and it was overseen. So it was safe, but now he's in a place where he is seeing drugs everywhere. And they were trying to put a positive spin on it that you're going to get out and it's going to be accessible. So, you know, maybe this is kind of preparation to how to handle it. But I just thought that was so interesting that it's accessible everywhere he turns. Yeah, and when you get out of prison, I mean, especially with addiction, establishing new social networks and is really key. And um, AJ's family has really rallied around making sure that, that, you know, I think they've all been transformed by this. I've said this to a lot of different parents I've talked to in particular, you know, a lot of people are involved in kind of advocacy work that 10 years ago, they would have never envisioned their lives being even remotely related to any of this. And they didn't even know anything. I mean, they've learned so much to learn how to do this kind of work. Uh, so I think the best outcome from this horrible situation would be lots of people who have transformed their thinking to provide new social networks that 
to have some generational effect. Um, I love that. What um, on page seventy eight? I won't read it because it's pretty raw. There's a um, a piece called "What Happens Under the Overpass," and I read that probably. 10 times the first time I read it. I loved the, it's kind of a perspective of that'll never be me. And I found it to be so raw. So if you could share something about that, I just thought that was, it epitomized kind of what it, what it becomes. Yeah. Dan, do you want to take that one since you work with Neil? Yeah, I'm just trying to find it in the book. Sorry. It's for... on page 78. Uh -huh. And it really gives the raw exactly what happens under an overpass when you are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for Neil, and Neil is a, obviously, if you just read this poem, but hopefully more a fantastic and a fantastically accomplished poet. Um, you know, it's the imagery of... You know, well, we had this in a couple of places. I mean, there's we 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 have an obituary, for example, in the book. That just this tendency for when when folks die or when they go through something to kind of sugarcoat things. And I think some of the most transformative work in our state are people who just address it directly. We saw, for example, you know, in some some more affluent communities in Ohio. I'm talking to you from Dublin, Ohio, for example, right now. And I actually heard the story about Dublin itself. The kind of covering up of this, you know, families who wanted to hide their child's addiction um, from others, they would send them off to quote unquote summer camp rather than just talking openly about the fact that this was happening in so many families in the neighborhood. Um, and, and until you get to that point, then, you know, you need a few courageous families to say, look, this is real. This is us. This is not about others. Um, but that requires language and, and, and uh, poems like Neil Carpathios is uh, what happens under the overpass just gives you language, as you mentioned, that just like you can't get out of your head. Right. <laughs> that, that, and the imagery is vibrant. Um, so, yeah, I don't I, I don't know what to, to say other than for me, it's these these vignettes of just not romanticizing this at all, telling you what it is directly. But also this is the reality. I mean, you know, homelessness in Cleveland is a huge issue. And I just was reading, you know, the last couple of months. I mean, there have been clearings out of, of homeless folks. Where do they go? They were under an overpass, but now they're, you know, who knows where. And it's not like we've developed like resources for these people. Right. We just don't know where they went. It was a very kind of Giuliani approach, as I mentioned before. You know, every single one of them is also, uh, you know, I want to say someone sent her daughter. My son never got to that point, thank goodness. But I have a lot of other people that I love who have. And I love a lot of parents that have kids out there. And I remember when we started noticing it more and more, you know, a couple of people in my life hadn't necessarily been exposed to it as I had, but after some time, I would begin to hear comments from them like, that's somebody's daughter. That's still somebody's son. And I think waking up to that, that it's not just a homeless population of people that are a nuisance or a burden or, you know, raw that you want to turn away from. It's still somebody's son or daughter and not, none of them are throwaway, but even if you have the perception, which stigma seems to create that these people deserved it or won it, not every single one of them could. This is a health crisis and this is, it's every single one of them has got a family out there. Yeah. And there's also a call here, you know, and, and Darren Adams, who, you know, is an obstetrician gynecologist in, um, um, 
in Portsmouth and also the county uh, coroner, um, you know, he talks about the life and death kind of like the, the trajectory. And Neil in this poem, like you, you hum to drown out your stomach's growling. You stare down at your hands that are swollen and empty and holding nothing the way you entered the world. Wow. Right? So there's this real call to remind ourselves of, you know, the kind of like the birth of life and that nobody ever has a child thinking, you know, this is going to be an addicted person or something like that. But until we get that, everybody is that everybody could be any of these people. Like you really haven't learned the humanity lesson here. Yeah, that's the exact center of it. Um, chapter 21 is called Remaking a Family, and I love that it was made from the perspective that it takes courage to tell a family story. And I'm so thankful that more people are. Uh, I think I had written one of the first books in this epidemic from the perspective of a mother, but I'm seeing them on the news now and more books come out and podcasts that are people that are kind of leaving their corporate positions or maybe just doing it on the side and opening up their family story to give hope or to encourage one another. And I think that that's just so beautifully important. Um, and you have a letter from a mother. I think that is chapter 22. Dear Travis, this one I was really moved by because I don't need, I mean, because, you know, just to be point blank, it is a family's greatest fear to lose someone, especially I think a mother. So to have it spelled out like this, her letters to him and her thoughts and the dates and everything, I read this one a couple of times too, if there's something you could speak on this one. Yeah. So you're referring to um, Vicki Sharbach's piece, I think, dear yeah. Travis. Yeah. So in this piece, you, you know, we hear you know, really painful kind of reflections of a mother who's lost her son and, and some of the reflections come, um, you know, talking about what it was like as he was working through his addiction. And then some of them come after, um, after he passed away as the result of an overdose. And so um, you really get, you feel the pain and the struggle and all of, you know, what she was going through when she was trying so much to help him work through this. And then you also see what it was like to see her work through and kind of process the loss that she experienced. Um, so it's incredibly vulnerable and personal to be able to walk through this with her. But I think you also develop a lot of empathy for what it's like to be a family member doing everything you can um, and ultimately not being able to do, um, you know, what you really want. And that is, you know, to be able to save your child um, from this illness. So I think it's an incredibly moving and powerful piece. And as Dan's pointed out in the past, in some of our discussions of this piece, you know, I think one of the most interesting things is that you just see how much parents love their kids. And that even though, you know, the, the outcome is, is not what they wanted about still, you know, how positively they speak about their kids and how much pride they have for them for, um, for fighting for so long to, to work on this addiction. You know, it really touched on something that, uh, has been important to me um, in just medic, you know, healthcare discussions generally. Susan Sontag famously kind of talked about this: how we talk about survivors in cancer, you know. But if we heroicize survivors, and what does that mean for those many, many, many people who died? Right? Are we deheroicizing them? Are we, you know, is there anything less there for not winning your battle or something like that? And, you know, I, I find it really important that she calls Travis her hero and that we not think about just outcomes, but that we think about, um, you know, the transformation of this, but also just like really rethink how we talk about these things in ways that are actually quite hurtful 
to other people and counterproductive for addressing the public health situation. Yeah, I agree. Chapter 23 is page 98. That is where you got the title of the book. Could you tell our listeners how you decided that? Sure, I could start. So yeah, the, there's a line in this book. Um, open it up uh, here and look at it. But you know, he talks about a place uh, not far from me, a place of despair. And so the, the poem is called Despair. And I think that Dan and I, when we were putting this book together, we struggled with what to call it because there's so many diverse, you know, contributions in the book. And ultimately, that was one of the big takeaways for us was that you know this is affecting so many different people and communities across Ohio. And whether people are are able to acknowledge or or know it or not, it really isn't very far from them, even if it feels like it's something that's happening to other people or in other communities, it's very much a part of everybody's um, experience. And I think that his poem really captures that feeling that we have in in putting this together. I thought it was powerful. There's a part of it that kind of captures the drama of what it's like when it says words of anger followed by retreat into an apartment to retrieve the gun, frightened passersby, neighbors hide in fear, an hour later all seems peaceful. How do I survive in a place where heroin is easier to find than hope? I think I just, I I got stuck on those few lines because I was thinking that is the chaos and madness that breaks out and you almost feel crazy in the midst of drama and then it calms down and things are peaceful and you think, how can I find hope? How could I even tell anybody this is going on? And I think that so many families, including my own and families I meet with and work with, experience those roller coasters of drama and need compassion and empathy and support. And I love how that was captured in this poem. Yeah, it's a fantastic poem. And um, Gerald's a great person. Uh, He loves his community. And we were really just, he wrote me back in probably five minutes and said, of course, of course, you can title (laughs) your book after my poem. (laughs) Then moving into part three, it's all about understanding and making sense of it. So I like that it's kind of moving in that direction and that you even have a chapter that talks about somebody from the perspective of needing pain management. So if you could tell a little bit about how you came up with this section and that perspective of it. I can start with the section and let Dan talk about the interview because he actually conducted that interview, um, which is a great discussion about how complicated the, you know, the experiences of pain management are. But just the section, Dan and I spent a lot of time with all these contributions, just trying to figure out how they fit together. And we, you know, ended up on five sections for the book. And the third one, Making Sense, we um, we found so many of our contributions were just really trying to understand, you know, how this happened, how things have gotten so bad, um, you know, what factors predispose people to addiction. And there's just all of these questions that were raised. And this chapter is really dedicated to the people trying to work through some of these issues to understand it a little bit better. So yeah, I was really happy to talk with Marty Helms and to do this interview. I, I Marty was one of the first people that we spoke with when we started this book project. And she went through a kind of arc of rethinking her own relationship to her pain medicine. She was um, sort of cut off abruptly at one point and had the experience of kind of experiencing her body without it. And, you know, she went through, it was, it was still complex. It wasn't like she ended, you know, started one place and ended in another very clear place. She was still, she has a debilitating, um, you know, disability um, and, and a bone disease. And um, she, you know, but, but I think it was a story that was really important because just watching how a lot of people, I mean, we have now people leaving uh, surgery and doctor's offices refusing pain medicine that 10 years ago or 15 years ago, they wouldn't have ever really thought about refusing. So you know, I, I think that just like this noticing that we're complex people who can rethink things is important. 
I love when it went into, um, what chapter is this? This was so good. Chapter 32 is the opioid encounters, and it talked about patient experiences, and this DO um, talks about a patient in her office that was an interior designer, I believe, that had just kind of turned on a dime and become hostile and violent. I thought that was so interesting because I know that's part, I've, I've witnessed that myself within my own family, and I know that's part of it. That was so well written. Well, you know, so Jenny Zamore is a is a, a DO here at uh, the Dublin campus at Ohio University, and you know, she's been keeping these journals for years and just kind of vignettes of things that she's experienced. You know, aside from the particulars, the one thing I like about the medium, just the kind of idea there, is just that you know physicians have a lot of complicated experiences too. That actually running an office or like. So even as we want to say, thank God that like libraries are these safe places or that sheriffs are rethinking their relationship to like, you know, helping people as opposed to locking them up. It's also super complicated. And there are a lot of people who are just really tired. Um, they work hard and addiction is exhausting for a lot of people. Even the caregivers need to be cared for as well. So um, that's one of the things that, that strikes me about not just the Zamor piece, but lots of pieces in the book, actually. Yeah, I love that. And then wrapping up part four and part five were based on solutions, which I think that you've probably come to figure out. And Lisa, we have found for our experience is no one size fits all. Just like every situation, every person addicted, every family and community may have some of the same dynamics, but our details are different. There is really no one solution, I don't believe, other than finding a way to help people get healthier and connect. Yeah, and I think the section, you know, Dan and I were really impressed by just learning what people around the state were doing. There was a lot of creative solutions that people had come up with um, that were, you know, that were effective and were really finding, you know, interesting ways to intervene. Just to highlight a couple of these, you know, one was um, from a director of a symphony in Delaware, Ohio, who was using uh, music therapy to help adolescents affected by opioids. And then we have um, another story from a group of individuals in Chillicothe and Ross County who had developed a race to raise money um, for drug prevention with youth in the county. So we just loved hearing these stories and, and really were encouraged by the really good work people were doing. And lots of clinicians too. I mean, you know, we have Dr. Katie Croft talking about how her own practice went through rethinking their prescription policies. But then Dr. Sharon Parsons, who's now the um, president of the Ohio Dental Association, just kind of go after she lost her son uh, to addiction, right. um, going back and just like doing the math, like how many wisdom teeth, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> opioids were prescribed after that. And just like, it, it's just kind of, one of the things that like, it's really important to me is just, there's enough responsibility to go around. There's enough blame. And, you know, like we need to sue some companies and we need them to pay, but we also need something, the ability to just talk openly about what, what everybody's roles in this was. And I, I think we see um, some snippets of that here. Yeah, I agree with that. I always love um, people talk about how it takes a village to raise a child or to come around a person, but you have to look at all the needs of the village as well. It's not just one person whose behavior or health needs to change. It's everyone around them. And then you end it with some challenging assumptions. Some of them were, I saw the word feral, things about libraries, even assumptions about addicts, what they come from, how they get addicted, the types of families they're from. I love that you ended with that. If you could kind of, for a couple of minutes, tell us why. Yeah, I can start. So, um, you know, as Dan and I were putting this together and trying to find an order for these sections, we thought, you know, we, you know, you might end with 
solutions in saying that, you know, people are already finding these great ways to respond and they are. But we also felt like there were a number of barriers to addressing opioid abuse and other addiction, um, you know, crises in the future and that there still was a tremendous amount of stigma and stereotypes related to addicts, related to certain communities across Ohio, particularly Appalachian communities or rural communities or certain urban communities um, that we, we, to have this section, a number of pieces who are, that are talking about, you know, these barriers in particular related to stigma. And so um, we have one uh, piece in here talking about um, adolescents from Portsmouth, Ohio, who are living in a place where people just automatically assume that they're going to be using drugs, that they're not going to you know, do much in terms of uh, accomplishing things in life because of where they're from and about how educators they are really challenging that. Um, and then we have um, another piece about, you know, what it's like to work as a, you know, a treatment provider, working with people who are affected by um, substance use disorders and how easy it is to kind of label like kind of us and them and realize that there's really a lot of similarities between people who are doing the, treat the treatment and those who are receiving it and trying to kind of cross those boundaries. Um, and then as, as Dan mentioned earlier, one of these pieces is called Feral and it's a, the, the efforts of one family who lost a family member to an opioid overdose um, to be honest in the obituary and to not hide, you know, the cause of death and to really talk openly about what had happened and how powerful it was to just, you know, be, to be honest and uh, forthcoming about the experience of losing somebody in this way and, and to let people know instead of, you know, hide that experience. Dan, what are your, your favorites from that section? Well, I, I want to make a comment just about the idea of the section. You know, uh, yeah. it, it, I think a lot of books would have ended with all the cool things people are doing to um, take on, you know, addiction or to, you know, and, and that's important work. It's really important work. But I think this kind of comes to Berkeley and I as social scientists and thinking hopefully a little deeper about transformation. I'm still not convinced we've learned much of anything from this crisis. And I, I say that because I, I want to, I want to be convinced that we have, I, I need to see it. I need to see that a true change of focus, a, a move from criminal justice to public health, for example, in terms of a mindset, um, you know, I, uh, an actual realization that living in a so-called, so the first piece, a good family in this section by Christine Hunt, you live in a so-called good community. And how often do we hear this? I didn't know this was in our community, you know, and it's like, get over your community and what you think it is and how invulnerable and how like you did all these things. You are all vulnerable. And the more you think you're vulnerable and the more you think you're invulnerable, probably the more vulnerable you actually are because you're not looking for it because, you know, so I think there's like this, this need to just be a little bit more humble to get over this idea that we can build a wall. I don't mean to get all, you know, Trump era on you, but that we can like build a wall. We can like, like somehow become indefensible and just realize that vulnerability is actually the thing that makes us stronger. Getting to know our communities, not walling ourselves off from them. Um, yeah. You know, like being a bit more open to them rather than arming ourselves against them. Like all right. of these things really add up to something really deep. And this book is kind of saying, I mean, the, the last chapter I think is really saying, come on, okay, we're doing great things. We get it. Are we really, really are we really learning the important lessons or are we just doing this for now and we're going to go back to our old ways? Yeah. When the threat is over. I don't know if you are familiar with the Mozart effect. I don't, but, uh, 
Tell me. There's, I guess a piece, I heard it on a podcast a while Berkeley, ago. Berkeley, do you know this? Do you know this Mozart effect? <laughs> I've heard of it, but I don't remember. I'm a little okay. obsessed. I think this is like how, you know, it's it's kind of symbolic of how change lasts. There's a piece, a Mozart piece that's really difficult and supposedly, I heard this on a medical podcast, when you listen to it, it causes your brain to expand the plasticity. But if you don't continue listening to things that stretch it that far, it goes back to what it was before. So you have to keep making those changes and and listening to new things and exploring that for that change to last. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. It sounds right. It sounds right. But like, like, like I'm saying, I just, you know, when people tell me that they're thinking differently, I... I'm just not going to, I'm going to be skeptical until I actually see it because I think we've seen too many kind of Pyrrhic victories as they call them, you know, just, yeah, we've said all the right words. We've done it. We've declared all the emergencies, but what really makes a society better is a transformation in the way it thinks that drives everything else. Yeah. And it's possible. Well, if you could, um, let everyone know how they can get in touch with you, how maybe hear one of your sessions if you guys are speaking publicly and where people can find the book. And I will blast it out as well. If I could just say, you know, I, I want to make sure everybody knows that uh, we are donating our editor's proceeds to three addiction services treat, um, you know, f- facilities programs around the state. You can read more details about that at notfarforme.org. Um, where you can also find information about buying the book, although it's available pretty much everywhere. But we'd really like it if, you, if you're in Ohio, go to a small bookstore, an independent bookstore, and buy it there because we want to support those folks. Yes. Yeah, we have, as Dan mentioned, you know, our website really has everything you would need to know about the book. It has our contact information, um, ways to get in touch with us, but also information about our events. You know, We have these sessions at libraries. We have two more coming up this fall, and we also have a couple of other related book events that you, um, we'd love to have you join us at. And have you had response outside of the state of Ohio? We've had some pretty cool responses just briefly. You know, um, again, we, we have this nice support for these library sessions from the Ohio Humanities Council. And we've received some nice feedback from other humanities councils just saying, you know, this is the kind of work that they want to be doing in their states, too. So we're hoping this is like one of the many ways that we can contribute to Ohio leading the way in something maybe a little bit novel. Um, yeah, we've received some just word you know, from folks in New York and Pennsylvania and Kentucky and other places saying that they thought the book was a really cool idea. Of course, our state you know, leads pretty closely into West Virginia. We have a lot of ties there. Um, and I don't know, Berkeley, if you have any other experiences, I mean, aside from our families. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those don't count. Um, We're big no, in Indiana. Think- We're big on Long Island <laughs> in New York. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think we've had we've had a good response. Um, you know, we've had great support, very generous support from the Ohio Humanities Council, and they've um, done a lot of work to get the book to you know, on the radar of of those interested in the humanities across the country. So I think we've had good um, good feedback from those individuals, and yeah, we're excited to get the book out there. That's what we really want people to use these stories to um, to have more conversation. You know, to have conversation about difficult topics and um, to start talking more and and reduce stigma in some way. So that's what we're excited to do is use these stories as kind of a foundation or as a kind of starting point to, to talk about um, things related to opioid abuse and other types of addiction. Yeah, because truly, even though Ohio, I believe, is, you know, the heart of it all, um, 
it's really happening everywhere. And I think every story in this book is relatable to anyone in any state because everyone's touched by it or could be moved by what they read. So I can't encourage listeners enough to look into the book. You can contact me or go into a bookstore like Dr. Dan said and check it out. We will end with a reading from the book. And thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. We wish, wish you so much success. And I'm extremely grateful for this work. Well, thank Anywhere. you so much. And yeah, yeah, thanks for being a contributor to the book and also for helping us, you know, expand its reach. It's really, really important. And we really value that. Thanks, Annie. Thanks so much. Walking past abandoned houses, I think of Eric. This poem wanted to start in a condemned house. So I took a walk to show the poem this town and asked, which one? The poem shrugged. Shattered windows rendered black no flicker of blue aquarium television light. Fast food wrappers and altar piled on the porch. A small pink running shoe, hole worn in the sole, stuck in a chain link fence. 15 years ago, while I was drinking flat beer in a dive bar, my friend Eric died after getting high from a transdermal oxycodone patch. He wrote poems I will never forget how he found his mother dead, her fingers gnawed to bone by rats, his glasses always broken, crooked, taped, his cheeks and arms scabbed. This poem can't imagine. It wasn't this house, but probably one like it, peeling clabbered, busted plumbing. This town smells burned out, and the burning no longer comes from the foundry or the coke plant or the steel mill. We are falling in on ourselves, shooting heroin into our veins. These houses, empty of furniture, food, clean clothes, laughter, shampoo, are helpless. Their dirty glass eyes begging to see something other than broken smokestacks, shoes strung on power lines. The ears that heard hooves on the brick that sleeps under pavement are long gone. There was no Narcan for Eric and no Narcan for wrecked Greek revivals.